Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader. Today is Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. And your reader is Cindy Fraser with Bill Sally at the Master Controls. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Now, from our studios located in the Northside branch of the Lexington Public Library, please join me for this live reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader, which is donated to Radio Eye by the publishers. Let's first read the weather, starting with the WKYT 5-day forecast. Today, high 90, low 60, hot fog in the morning. Real fill temperature 92. UV index 5. Wednesday, high 82, low 61. Very warm. Real fill temperature 89. UV index 5. Thursday, high 83, low 62. Becoming cloudy. Real fill temperature 82. UV index 2. Friday, High, 72, low, 46, a little rain. Real field temperature, 71, UV index, 1. Saturday, high, 61, low, 39, partly sunny, cooler. Real field temperature, 59, UV index, 4. The Almanac for Lexington for Sunday. Temperature, high, 85, low 58, normal high 75, normal low 53. Last year's high was 76 degrees, last year's low 50. The record high was 97 in 2019, the record low 34 in 1947. Precipitation, Sunday, zero. Month to date, zero. Normal month to date, 0.12 inches. Year to date, 34.81 inches. Normal year to date, 38.73 inches. Last year to date, 39.08 inches. Record for the date was 1.4 inches in 1977. Sun and moon cycles. Sunrise, 7.36 a.m. Sunset, 7.19 p.m. Moonrise, 7.50, Moonrise, 9.56 p.m. Moonset, 12.28 p.m. The last quarter of the moon will be October 6th. The new moon, October 14th. The first quarter, October 21st, and the full moon will be October 28th. Pollen count from the National Allergy Bureau. As of September 7th, the main offender is weeds and the pollen count is very high. Weather trivia. Question. What is the record low temperature for the lower 48 states in October? Answer. Minus 46 on October 30th, 2019 in Peter Sinks, Utah. Now let's read the front page headlines from today's edition. Our first headline, Madison County, a bellwether for 2023 governor's election. Next, Somerset Greenhouse Deal, now moving forward. Our next headline from today's front page, Newsom taps Emily's List leader to fill Feinstein's seat. And our final headline from today's front page is an analysis. House fight to oust McCarthy threatens balance of power. Let's turn to our first item. Madison County, a bellwether for 2023 governor's election by Austin Horn. Richmond, 
Four months ago, GOP gubernatorial nominee Daniel Cameron rallied dozens of Richmond Republicans at his very first campaign event since winning the Republican primary in landslide fashion. Why was his first event in Madison County? Cameron, the state's attorney general and 37-year-old rising star within the party, told the crowd gathered at a Richmond historic estate that the result in Madison County would play an especially pivotal role in deciding the outcome of his race against incumbent Democrat Governor Andy Bashir. Madison County is going to play an outsized role in this conversation because in 19, we didn't win Madison County. In 2023, we have to. That conversation starts today. It starts with your hard work, Cameron said. The county swing for Bashir over former GOP Governor Matt Bevan by 0.3 points. Along with Scott County, a fellow Collar County around Fayette to the north, Madison County tracked the closest with a statewide result. Even more, Madison County election results for the 2020 2019 Attorney General's race, the 2020 Presidential race, the 2022 U.S. Senate race, and the 2022 vote against the anti-abortion rights constitutional amendment all came within one percentage point of the statewide result. If there is a political bellwether in this governor's race, Madison County fits the bill as well as any county in the Commonwealth. Madison County's roughly 95,000 residents average almost the same income as a median Kentuckian at $55,000. And while it is more white and more educated, it's home to two post-secondary schools in Eastern Kentucky University and Berea College than those in the rest of Kentucky, those differences tend to balance each other out in terms of partisan preferences. But by many measures, Madison County seems solidly Republican. Like most of Kentucky's 120 counties, it used to be controlled by Democrats. But that balance of power changed slowly at the turn of the century, and then nearly all at once in the Donald Trump era. Since since Trump's first presidential run in 2016, the county has voted Republican for president by at least 27 percentage points and Republican for the U.S. Senate by at least 22 points. By 2019, its number of registered Republicans outmatched registered Democrats. As of 2023, every county partisan official, with the exception of one, is a Republican. And yet, Bashir beat a Republican opponent there in 2019, and local political observers predict a close matchup again. Partisanship and the very personal. You could say that Madison County Coroner Jimmy Cornelson is a dying breed. Ever since Sheriff Mike Coyle switched parties and became a Republican shortly after winning re-election in 2022, Cornelson has been the only Democrat to hold partisan office in Madison County. A former deputy coroner, Cornelson has faced no competition and received high vote totals in six election cycles since beating his boss in 1998. He attributes that to the personal nature of his role. Life and death are very personal. It's so personal. It's, that's my baby laying there. That's my husband laying there, Cornelson said. So much so that he said, it probably shouldn't be a partisan office. Considered actions, such as driving to church in a separate vehicle from his wife in case he gets called out, leaving home in the middle of the night to get a necklace at the request of a loved one of the recently deceased, counseling people in their immediate grief. These are actions more important to professional and political success in Madison County than any party-line maneuvering, Cornelson said. In that way, he sees some similarities between his own work and Bashir, who's been dubbed the Consoler-in-Chief by some. Could that parlay into an election success for the incumbent governor in Cornelson's backyard? Look what this man has been through. He's been through COVID, floods, school shootings, tornadoes, and hailstorms, Cornelson said. On COVID, he bellied up to the bar as far as I'm concerned. I know people that got mad over it, but here's my answer to that. I did several COVID deaths, but how many would I have done with fewer precautions?
For many voters, though, national politics still rule. Brandon Rutherford, a Republican who chairs the Madison County School Board, said Madison County voters' alignment with national Republicans is a strong force, with registration numbers tipping more in the GOP's favor each month. But the decisive factor in favor of Cameron, he predicts, will be overwhelming wins by GOP candidates running down the ballot, buoyed by two neighboring Garrett County nominees. I think Cameron will win Madison County, but it's going to be close. And I really do believe it's going to be because of the straight party vote, Rutherford said. But other Republicans aren't as sure straight party ticket voting will prevail. Matt Howell, an Eastern Kentucky University government professor who is a sponsor of EKU's College Republicans chapter, said he's aware of some concern among the local GOP that Bashir's popularity will cross party lines at the ballot box. It's still a pretty Republican-leaning, Trumpy area. That said, I have heard rumblings among Republicans in the whole area that there are a lot of Republicans who, and I hear this from people who do go door-knocking, that there are a lot of people who feel like Bashir hasn't done so bad of a job, so why would we vote him out? This is anecdotal, but it does kind of indicate that the governor's election is going to be close, Howell said. The drug epidemic, homelessness, and economic development were most frequently cited by Madison County residents as pressing local issues, though it's unclear if any of these will play a role in how voters approach the gubernatorial race. The Bluegrass Army Depot, which employs more than 1,400 people per EKU-based public radio station WEKU, is another topic of discussion. With its decommissioning process coming to a close, Local officials are concerned about finding jobs for those workers and replacing lost local occupational tax revenue. According to Martina Jackson, a Democrat who ran for State House in 2022, the prospect of new development in the county, which is the eighth fastest growing of Kentucky's 120, can be a double-edged sword. Well, people like the small town feel here, but I think the economic opportunities are really important. We're starting to get noticed for various reasons, including for having a very employable demographic here, Jackson said. Madison County also has the longest stretch of I-75 in the state, and many in the community are hopeful that more employers can be attracted along the busy highway. But the interstate also makes the county a hotspot for drug activity, according to Cornelson. The coroner said that his office counted 69 overdose deaths in the county last year and has logged 55 so far in 2023. The Collar Counties Chris Kirkwood, a doctoral candidate at the University of Kentucky who specializes in elections analysis, figures Bashir is likely to lose support in rural counties across Kentucky due to national trends in voting behavior. With the traditional Democratic centers of Fayette and Jefferson counties likely sticking with Bashir, Kirkwood said he thinks the election will be won or lost in the collar counties around Lexington, Madison, Clark, Bourbon, Wordford, Woodford, Jessamine, and Scott. Collectively, that group of counties has almost as much population as Fayette County, a U.S. Census estimated 293,000 people compared to Fayette's 320,000. Bevan won the region by nearly 2.1 percentage points in 2019. Kirkwood predicted that Bashir would need to win it by as much or more to scrape by in 2023. I'm not confident the numbers are going to hold up for him in a lot of the state. I think he's not going to do as poorly in some rural parts because of the disaster relief and highway expansion, but he is definitely going to lose some ground in some places. I think he's going to need to win the collar counties outright. Kirkwood said. Sites and Studies Newbie Country Store is a symbol in rural Madison County. Touting itself as one of the only true country stores left in Kentucky, the sandwich and specialty grocery stop sees not only regular farmers and curious tourists, it also serves as a community hub and tutoring center through owner Ashley Hatton's nonprofit. It's in the heart of a Northwest County precinct that supported Bevan over Bashir by 27 percentage points, 62 to 35. However, it's been 
quiet when it comes to talk of the governor's race so far, according to Hatton. About 75% of the regulars, who stop in and shoot the breeze for a prolonged time, leaned Republican. The conversation at the store is often about matters other than politics, though. That's a possible corollary of the election featuring less vitriol in 2019 or the impending 2024 presidential election. For us, the people that talk the most are Republican, so it's kind of like we live in a vacuum, right? If the store was in the middle of downtown Richmond, it would probably be the other way around. It is, politically speaking, the other way around at Dreaming Creek Brewery in downtown Richmond. Bashir has appeared several times. Charlie Hamilton, the proprietor there, who is a lifelong Richmonder, said that downtown, where he lives and works, is a generally more left-leaning place. It's always a huge crowd, and is pretty energetic, he said. I think a lot of people around here think he did well during the pandemic in keeping things going and as safe as possible. The brewery's precinct voted for Bashir in 2019, 66-31. Morgan Eves is a Democratic attorney and consultant who ran for state representative in Madison County in 2018 and worked under Bashir at the start of his administration. The Bashir team's connection with Madison County via campaign and official events is a game-changer, he said. Andy, Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman, and Bashir senior advisor Rocky Atkins have been omnipresent there to shake hands and kiss babies, all that old-school political stuff. In rural communities, that makes a huge difference. People want to know who they're voting for and be asked for their vote, Eve said. But what about the two campuses in Madison County? Across the United States, college towns are trending more and more left as Democrats continue to make gains with college-educated voters. 33.4% of those living in Madison County have a bachelor's degree, compared to 25.7% statewide and Republicans grow more skeptical of higher education institutions. Berea College senior Garrett Clark is a registered Republican from Bourbon County who embodies that story. Walking to class last week, he told the Herald leader he's not certain who he'll support for governor. This election would be his first, but he knows and likes Bashir. As far as his policies and stuff, I'd be lying if I said I was super into all of it, I just like that I see him in communities and he actually seems to be doing stuff that's helping people, Clark said. It doesn't seem like he's doing it as a gimmick like a lot of politicians do. Howell, the EKU College Republican sponsor, said that he's not sensed much excitement on campus for this gubernatorial race compared to the last one or 2024's presidential race. One of my projects when I get back from midterms is going to be like, Hey guys, it's October. There's an election a month away. Like, do you need me to contact people to organize door knocking or bring a guest speaker? There has been no concerted effort that I have seen to get the students involved from any direction, either from the students or the state party, Howell said. This article is accompanied by a photo of downtown Richmond. Our next item from today's front page is entitled, Somerset Greenhouse Deal now moving forward, by Rick Childress. A deal to sell App Harvest Somerset Greenhouse to a Netherlands-based indoor produce grower is back on track, attorney said in a bankruptcy hearing Monday. According to a memo filed in Texas Federal Bankruptcy Court, Bosch Growers, a family-owned Dutch company, will acquire the 30-acre berry and cucumber-growing greenhouse for $44 million dollars reaffirming a previous deal that was already approved by Judge David R. Jones of the Federal Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas. The deal was modified to offer Bosch more protection and offer more chances for the recovery of funds for App Harvest Estate, said Anthony Grossi, an attorney representing App Harvest. The revised agreement is better for Bosch, Grossi said. It provides greater certainty to close, improves economics, including a breakup fee, and puts Bosch in greater operational control during the interim period. Monday's hearing came days after attorneys told Jones that a new deal to sell the greenhouse to Greater Nevada Credit Union, a Nevada-based bank, was in the works. Jones had already approved the sale of the greenhouse to Bosch, and news of a new deal 
drew the judge's ire at a separate hearing last Thursday. Last week, we had a mess, Jones told the court. Today, we have a process moving forward. The remaining funds App Harvest had to keep the Somerset facility running expired at the end of September. According to the memo filed in court Sunday night, GNCU, the Nevada bank, will pay to keep the farm running until the sale closes. During that time, the involved parties will seek USDA approval of Bosch's takeover of the facility, and then the company will eventually take over operations. The question of USDA approval, a requirement to the sales process, was a sticking point raised when the deal selling the greenhouse to GNCU was considered. Now, GNCU is helping to push through USDA approval, said Francis Smith, an attorney representing GNCU. Receiving USDA approval is a significant undertaking, Smith said. Should Bosch be denied by the USDA, then the Nevada Bank will pay Bosch a $2.5 million breakup fee. At the beginning of the hearing, Grossi said GNCU had previously delayed getting USDA approval of the sale, and Joss Wolfsoll, an attorney representing Bosch, said the well was poisoned on the USDA approval. Smith denied that GNCU had delayed getting the approval and denied, quote, poisoning the well. The bank was prepared to assist moving forward, and what happened previously was water under the bridge. GNCU helped finance the building of the greenhouse, and under the new deal, the bank will be Bosch's lender. Smith said they were working to repair the relationship. Bosch was not aware of the possible deal to sell the greenhouse to GNCU until the hearing Thursday, said Wolfschel, who was hired by Bosch shortly after that hearing. The company did not feel the process was fair until Jones got involved, Wolfschel said. We're thankful that you raised the issues you did, Wolfshold told Jones, it's concerning to me that they potentially wouldn't have been raised if your honor hadn't raised them. Jones offered an apology to Bosch on behalf of everyone. This is not the way the process should work, Jones said. Certainly not a process that I'm charged with overseeing. Tijman von der Bosch, the company's president, told the Herald leader in an email they're ultimately happy with the outcome. As I said, the most important part is securing ongoing operations, jobs, and berries, Vanderbosch said. With this deal, we can operate in the coming days as usual and have plenty of time to secure a good transition, an outcome we are happy with. An update on this sale process will occur at a December 7 status conference. Court records show. Next, still from our front page, is an item entitled, Newsom Taps Emily's List Leader to Fill Feinstein's Seat, by Laura Rosenhall and Sima Mita, of the Los Angeles Times, from Sacramento. Governor Gavin Newsom has picked LaFonza Butler, a Democratic strategist who rose to prominence in the labor movement, to fill the Senate seat held by Diane Feinstein, who died Friday at age 90. Newsom's office confirmed. The pick fulfills the governor's pledge to appoint a black woman while rejecting calls for him to tap Representative Barbara Lee, a prominent black congresswoman from Oakland who is running for the position in the 2024 election. Butler is a president of Emily's List, a national political organization that focuses on electing Democratic women who support abortion access. She has deep experience in democratic politics, having previously served as president of a powerful labor union and as an advisor to Kamala Harris's 2020 presidential campaign. It's a historic appointment for a governor who has prioritized appointing LGBTQ people to positions of power. Butler will be the first out person of color to serve in the Senate. It also could scramble the 2024 race for Senate that is well underway. Butler has connections that could make her a formidable fundraiser, which would be necessary for any candidate jumping into a race just six months before the March primary election, when other candidates have been fundraising all year. Newsom has faced withering criticism ever since announcing plans to appoint a short-term caretaker to the coveted post, heat which his administration tried to alleviate on Sunday, 
by offering assurances the governor's appointee would be free to launch a 2024 Senate campaign. If that person decides she wants to seek a full term in 2024, then she is free to do so. There is absolutely no litmus test, no promise, Newsom spokesman Anthony York said Sunday morning, several hours before the governor announced his pick. It's the second time Newsom has appointed a U.S. Senator for California, a rare exercise of power that last occurred in 1953 when then-Governor Earl Warren tapped Thomas Kuchel as Senator after he had appointed William Nolan several years earlier. With the 2024 race for Feinstein's successor already underway, Newsom faced competing political pressures in making this election. The Democrats' slim majority in the Senate created urgency for him to act fast, but he had already made public promises that limited his options, vowing both to name a black woman and to stay out of the ongoing Senate race by not tapping any of the current candidates. Three Democratic members of Congress are running. Lee, who is black, as well as Representatives Katie Porter of Irvin and Adam B. Schiff of Burbank, who are white. Newsom said earlier this month, when appointing a Feinstein replacement was still hypothetical, that he didn't want to interfere with the election by naming one of them to the post and would instead appoint a short-term caretaker. That angered Lee and her supporters because Newsom promised to appoint a black woman, a constituency both loyal and influential in Democratic politics. There have been no black women in the U.S. Senate since Harris stepped down in 2021 to become vice president. Since Feinstein died on Friday, Lee's supporters have mounted an aggressive campaign calling on Newsom to tap her. The most qualified person on day one to fill the legacy of Senator Dianne Feinstein is none other than Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Representative Stephen Horsford, chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, said Sunday in an interview with MSNCB. She has a foreign affairs experience. She has a budget experience at a time when cuts to every program that helps working people and families is under assault. She has the experience when it comes to fighting for social and economic justice and women's rights. And, at a time when all of our rights are under attack, we need the most prepared person to help us in the Senate. The caucus also sent Newsom a letter making the case for Lee, and Horsford said he had talked to Newsom about it by phone and in person. We're asking him to understand the moment of this appointment, not only for the people of California, but for the people of the United States, Horsford said. This article is accompanied by a photo of Emily's, Emily's List President LaFonza Butler addressing a Biden-Harris campaign rally June 23rd, the first anniversary of the Supreme Court's Dobbs v. Jackson decision that struck down a federal right to abortion at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. Our final item from today's front page is an analysis entitled House Fight to Oust McCarthy Threatens Balance of Power by Billy House of Bloomberg News. Republican Party divisions are intensifying in the aftermath of a last-ditch deal to avert a U.S. government shutdown as a drive to overthrow House Speaker Kevin McCarthy threatens to shake the balance of power in the Capitol. The alliances that emerge from this fight, which hardline Representative Matt Gates announced Sunday, will have far-reaching ramifications for the Republican-controlled House's ideological fervor and hunger for brinksmanship. The rare rebellion against a House Speaker and unprecedented possibility members of the opposition party may rescue him unfolds as Washington is struggling to work out annual funding for the government. Aid to Ukraine hangs in the balance, along with contentious battles over immigration and asylum policy, abortion rights, and support for the poor. Despite temporary funding approval over the weekend, the U.S. faces another shutdown threat November 17th. If Gates can persuade just four more GOP hardliners to join his mutiny, it would succeed combined with nearly unified Democratic opposition against McCarthy. However, Democrats could help McCarthy, either by voting against the motion or choosing not to vote at all. A rescue by Democrats would push the Speaker into what amounts to a coalition government in the House.
a remarkable shift that would force a reappraisal of the House's legislative agenda. The threat from the far right would be neutralized, but McCarthy would be on shaky ground, vulnerable to the next challenge if he lost Democratic support. Centrist Democrats have previously signaled they would consider rescuing McCarthy, who has been under the threat of ouster since he won the speakership on the 15th round in January. But that was before the Speaker launched a polarizing impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, a move that failed to quell his restive right flank. McCarthy's ouster would open a leadership vacuum in the House, with no obvious successor to unify the fractious party, creating more political uncertainty. And there are still Democrats in Washington who see McCarthy, particularly a McCarthy willing to make deals with Democrats, as a better alternative than any potential successor. The drama is playing out as Moody's Investor Service, the only remaining major major credit grader to give the U.S. a top rating, warned in late September its confidence in the U.S. is wavering because of concerns about governance. House Democratic leaders haven't tipped their hands on whether they would come to the aid of McCarthy. This article is accompanied by a photo of U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, speaking with members of the media following passage in the House of a 45-day continuing resolution on Saturday in Washington, D.C. It's now time to turn to the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location if it is given. Leah Arthur, 53, of London. Joyce Kelbrew Bagwell, 83, formerly of Lebanon. Helen Bailey, 90, of Versailles. Thera Faye Cantor, 84, of Lexington. Anna Cottrell, 98, of Lawrenceburg. Jane DeMoss, 78, of Nicholasville. Barbara Jean Dickerson, 89, of Lexington. Oakley Douglas, 82, of Russell Springs. Justin B. Halton, 33, of London. Dean Keppel House, 85, of Stamping Ground. Robert Keith Jeffries, 91, of Greensburg, Kentucky. Herbert Hoover Killian, 94, of Barberville. Pauletta Lewis, 76, of Sandy Hook. Thelma Lewis Atkins, 91, of West Liberty. Stacy Allen Luke, 54, of Springfield. Shana L. Mapp, 59, of Frankfurt. Wayne Mulcahy, 88, of Nicholasville. Camden Roop, 40, of Nicholasville. Jackie Ray Seeley, 87, of London. William Spencer, 61, of Frankfurt. Robert Lee Spencer IV, 51, of Lawrenceburg. B. Staten, 92, of Kings Mountain. John Stuckey, 88, of Wilmore. Richard Thacker, 77, of Versailles. David L. Trimmer, 76, of Mount Sterling. Judy Ann Walker, 68, of London. Leonard John L.J. Weber, 75, of Richmond. Anna Wilson, 75, of Lexington. If you would like any further information about any of the obituaries today, please visit this site. It is at legacy.com slash obituaries slash Kentucky. Again, that site is legacy.com slash obituaries slash Kentucky. Also, you can now call us at our Radio I studios at 859-422-6390 and we will try to read them to you over the phone. Now let's return to news items from today's paper. Our next item is entitled, Conspirators Sentenced for Laundering $23 Million Through Lexington, by Taylor Six. Two men were sentenced for their involvement in a, quote, far-reaching conspiracy 
to launder $23 million in drug money through Lexington, according to the United States Attorney's Office. Anthony Anthony Scott Kasu, 29, of Olympia, Washington, was sentenced to nearly six years in federal prison in order to forfeit more than $200,000. Felipe Martinez, 25, of Los Angeles, California, was sentenced to five years in federal prison and must forfeit $347,828 of drug money. Both men pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit promotional money laundering and were prosecuted in Kentucky. According to their plea agreements, Casu and Martinez engaged in a money laundering scheme with four additional defendants with crimes occurring in Lexington and Chicago. Carlos Gonzalez, Rudy Guerrero, Warren Miller, and Oscar Alberto Palacio Espirquierte were also sentenced for their connection to the scheme. All the men allegedly participated in the organization sometime from August 2018 to December 2021. Each defendant delivered drug money to others for conversion to cryptocurrency, which was later transferred to other conspirators in Mexico. A total of 26 kilograms of cocaine was also seized during the investigation, as well as three firearms, according to the federal government officials. Casu was responsible for $765,065 in laundered funds, while Martinez was held accountable for $347,828, according to United States attorneys. Casu was identified as an international money broker who imported controlled substances and needed profits laundered and returned to drug suppliers in Mexico, according to court documents. He was arrested in April and made his first Kentucky court appearance in May. Defendants gave drug money to undercover agents in Lexington. On different occasions, the men separately delivered drug money to undercover Drug Enforcement Administration agents acting as, quote, couriers, according to court documents. The undercover agent would receive a contract from the men who organized the transaction to collect money in Lexington. The agent was expected to pick up the money and provide a serial number for a $1 bill to be used as a code during the drop. This code was given to the person delivering the money and and confirmed that the courier had the specific bill in his possession before transferring the money. These men would arrange meetings at different places throughout Lexington, including a gym parking lot and a hotel parking lot, according to court documents. Once the undercover agent had the money, it would be transferred to an undercover DEA bank account. Al Guerrero accepted a plea deal, according to court records. Guerrero was convicted by a jury for one count of conspiracy to launder money. He was sentenced to serve just over six and a half years in prison in November. Gonzalez and Espiritu both pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering as part of a plea deal, according to their plea agreements. Espiritu was sentenced in September to serve two and a half years in prison. Gonzalez was sentenced to eight years. Our next item is entitled, Kentucky Man Arrested After Giving Officer the ID of Another Wanted Man by Christopher Leach. A Kentucky man has been charged with identity theft after he provided a police officer a false identification of another wanted man, according to the Corbin Police Department and court records. On Sunday, a Corbin police officer conducted a traffic stop on Bacon Creek Road near Cumberland Falls Highway for failure to signal, according to court documents. One of the individuals in the vehicle later identified as 30-year-old Michael Jones, told the officer he didn't have a driver's license, but instead provided a social security number for a man who had an active warrant for arrest. During a search of the vehicle, the officer found Jones's wallet, which contained his driver's license. Court documents say it took over an hour for the officer to learn Jones' true identity, and it was also determined that Jones had several warrants for his arrest. If you're going to give fake identification, make sure the other person isn't wanted too, Corbin Police wrote in a Facebook post. Jones was charged with theft of identity of another without consent, tampering with physical evidence, possession of marijuana, 
and possession of drug paraphernalia, police said. During Jones' apprehension, he attempted to chew up a clear baggie of green leafy substance believed to be marijuana, according to court documents. Ten hypodermic needles were also found during the traffic stop, according to court documents. Jones is being held at the Whitley County Detention Center, according to jail records. Our next item is entitled, Man Arrested After Trying to Hit Officer's Car During Traffic Stop, by Taylor Six. A Nicholasville man was arrested on eight charges Sunday, including attempted murder of a police officer, after he attempted to hit a cruiser with an officer inside, authorities said. Justin Reister, 32, was arrested early Sunday morning. He is charged with attempted murder of a police officer, fleeing or evading police, first-degree wanton endangerment of a police officer, driving on a suspended license, no registration, reckless driving, careless driving, and speeding, according to online jail records. Officers with the Harrodsburg Police Department attempted to conduct a traffic stop on Louisville Road around 1.30 a.m. Sunday when they suspected Reister was driving under the influence, according to Corporal Jared Duncan. Reister failed to yield to the traffic stop and continued on, and during that, he tried to veer left and attempted to strike the cruiser of officer that was alongside him, Duncan told the Herald Leader. Duncan said officers worked with the Boyle County attorney to confirm the charges which are under review at this time. Reister did not make contact with the officer's cruiser and there were no injuries to any officers or Reister. Reister is being held in the Boyle County Detention Center on a $50,000 bond, according to online jail records. Next, scientists behind Pfizer, Moderna mRNA vaccines win Nobel by Naomi Kresge, Katie Pojampalo of Bloomberg News. Two scientists won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for research that laid the groundwork for some of the best-selling medicines of all time, the messenger RNA vaccines against COVID-19. Caitlin Carrico and Drew Weissman's work helped pioneer the technology that enabled Moderna Incorporated and the Pfizer Inc. BioNTech SE partnership to swiftly develop shots. The vaccines have been given to hundreds of millions of people around the world, a key step toward easing the coronavirus pandemic. Carrico and Weissman will share the $1 million award. The Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm said in a statement Monday. The scientists showed how to solve one of the major problems of mRNA by tweaking it to avoid causing inflammation. Their research, published in 2005, was one of the building blocks that allowed it to be introduced into the body. Through their groundbreaking findings, which have fundamentally changed our understanding of how mRNA interacts with our immune system, the laureates contributed to the unprecedented rate of vaccine development during one of the greatest threats to human health in modern times, the Nobel Assembly said. Their work became the basis for a new type of inoculation. Instead of introducing a weakened or dead virus into the body to teach the immune system to recognize an infection, mRNA is used to prompt cells to produce what's needed for a vaccine themselves. The approach is much quicker and enabled Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech team to develop shots against COVID in less than 11 months. Carrico, born in Hungary, and Weissman, an American, labored in relative obscurity for years with an approach that many other scientists had written off as too difficult to use. The daughter of a butcher, Carrico was born in 1955 and grew up in a small town in the eastern part of the country. She earned her doctorate in biochemistry at the University of Skid, working with RNA for the first time in 1978. In 1985, she moved to the U.S. for a job at Temple University in Philadelphia, then later became a research assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. For years, she struggled to get academic recognition for her work. After failing to get grant funding, she was demoted in 1995. Carrico, reached by the Secretary of the Nobel Assembly, said she was overwhelmed and also put it in context with her situation as a scientist. 
Thomas Perlman, the secretary, told reporters gathered in Stockholm that the prize marks a dramatic change in her circumstances. Weissman earned his medical doctorate in immunology and microbiology at Boston University in 1987, joining UPenn in 1997 after a fellowship at Anthony Fauci's lab at the National Institutes of Health. Our next article is entitled, Home Sellers Cutting Prices as Buyer Competition Drops, by Mary Ellen Kegnoslia of Money. The best time to buy a house this year could be upon us, and sellers are dropping their list prices. With the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate hitting a two-decade high as of September 27th, data suggests buyers are balking and sellers have little choice but to cut asking prices. Competition is cooling off remarkably fast, even for this slower time of year, according to a Fall Outlook report from listing site Zillow. A report from brokerage Redfin found that about 6.5% of homes for sale in the U.S. saw a price drop in September, compared to 5.8% in August. Even so, housing costs in general remain very high. According to Redfin's latest housing market update, roughly 1 in 15 U.S. homes on the market decreased in price in the four weeks ending September 24th. It's a rate that Redfin says is high compared to the same period in previous years. Zillow's report shows that the weekly share of listings with a price cut jumped to 9.2% for the week ending September 16th, the highest percentage since November 2022. However, home buyers aren't exactly finding great deals. The median home sale price is up 3% year-over-year at $372,500 as of September 17th, and the daily average 30-year fixed mortgage rate is 7.65% as of September 27th, Redfin says. What's more, the week of September 21st, the median monthly mortgage payment reached an all-time high of $2,666, according to Redfin. That's an 8.5% higher than the same time last year. Both Zillow and Redfin found that inventory grew in September and supply is at its highest levels since February. Between the relative strength of new listings last month and weaker purchasing flows at the same time, the total count of active inventory continued to climb, Zillow senior economist Jeff Tucker wrote. Sellers may be slashing their listing prices for a few reasons, according to Zillow. It could be due to buyers retreating, overly ambitious asking prices, or both. Sellers may also be worried that they missed the peak summer home buying season and feel compelled to cut prices now before demand drops lower. Regardless, both buyers and sellers face unfavorable conditions overall. According to Zillow, sellers may now be at a greater disadvantage compared to the summer when a lack of listings increased competition among buyers. For buyers, market conditions are undoubtedly improving. Zillow's Tucker says listings are at their highest since December, which could give buyers a better chance of finding a home. That favorable supply setup is coinciding with a negative shock to demand which means less competition for those home shoppers who remain in the hunt, he says. Now let's turn to the opinion page of today's edition, where our first editorial is entitled, A Collapse of China's Economy Would Hurt Many, Including U.S., by Christopher Tang of the Chicago Tribune. The Western news media's focus on China's recovering economy following a significant downturn last year due to COVID-19 restrictions has been unrelenting. There has been extensive speculation about the potential crash of China's economy, yet few have delved into the critical questions. What is the likelihood of China's economy collapsing? And, if it does, what impact would this have on the global economy? Every day, a flood of articles from the U.S., United Kingdom, and European Union underscores China's challenges. The country is grappling with a shrinking and aging population as a result of its one-child policy. This policy, in effect from 1979 to 2016, was designed to curb population growth as a means to alleviate poverty. 
Furthermore, China's youth unemployment rate reached a record high of 21.3% in June, prompting Chinese authorities to cease the release of age-related job data. When it rains, it pours. The value of property developer stocks in China has fallen rapidly as many property developers are teetering on the edge of default. For example, shares of Evergrande, once the second largest developer in China, have lost more than 99% of their value in the past three years as Beijing cracked down on property firms to curb their excessive borrowing. There is legitimate concern about China's economy. However, it is important to note that China's economy is not contracting. In fact, it is projected to grow by 5% this year, according to a survey conducted by Reuters. While this 5% growth rate may seem modest compared with China's exponential growth over the last four decades, it still outpaces the growth of the U.S., U.K., and E.U. For years, Western experts forecast a China collapse, notably during the Asian financial crisis in the 1990s and the global financial crisis in 2008. However, their predictions often fell short, largely because they are based on macro-level analysis rather than grounded observations. Fast forward to 2023. China took measures to prevent the housing bubble from bursting in 2020 by halting the flow of cheap money to cash-strapped property developers. In August, Country Garden, once China's largest developer, missed interest payments on two U.S. dollar-denominated bonds. To prevent the potential collapse of Country Garden, Creditors agreed in early September to allow Country Garden to repay the debt of $540 million in installments over three years. Meanwhile, the Chinese government has unveiled various measures to support the flagging property market. Regarding job creation, it is true that many Chinese tech giants were downsizing amid an economic slowdown, just like the U.S., However, China's gig economy continues to grow and employ at least 200 million people. Suppose that China's economy does collapse due to unforeseeable events. It could create a contagion impact around the world due to the intertwined nature of global economies with China's economy. According to a report issued by The Economist, Almost 20% of Zambia's gross domestic product and 10% of Chile's GDP are based on their export of copper and iron to China, respectively. Western countries would not be immune if China falls. For example, 10% of Germany's GDP is based on the export of goods and services to China. In fact, China has been Germany's biggest trade partner for the past seven years, with bilateral trade rising to a record high $327 billion last year. From the U.S. perspective, it was reported that a Chinese slump would not have much direct effect on demand for U.S. products because China bought only about $150 billion last year, which is less than 1% of the United States' GDP. While the overall impact of China's collapse would be small as a whole, the impact on the U.S. tech sector would be significant. For example, the Chinese market accounted for roughly 20% of Apple sales last year. Also, a recent report revealed that 10 stocks in the S&P 500 received more than 27% of their annual revenue from China. In the near term, China will continue to play an important role in the world economy. If China does collapse, it could become a nightmare for all. And this opinion piece is written by Christopher Tang, who is a professor at the Anderson School of Management at the University of California in Los Angeles. Our next editorial for the opinion page is entitled, It's Too Easy for Floods to Bring New York City to Its Knees, by Mark Gongloff of Bloomberg Opinion. When we think of the catastrophes produced by climate change, most of us typically think of supercharged hurricanes, massive wildfires, and punishing heat waves. But climate change can turn even a simple rainstorm into a shocking disaster. Much of the New York metropolitan area was treading water on Friday after hours of torrential rain that capped an already wet week. 
Roughly half the subway lines in one of the world's busiest metro systems were suspended or delayed. Streets and highways around the city were flooded. The city's airports, key national hubs, faced massive delays. People had to be rescued from flooded basement apartments. Four to six inches had already fallen as of midday Friday, with an estimated four more to come. That would amount to roughly two typical months' worth of rain for the city in just 48 hours. New York Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency. Parts of New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania were also swamped. Believe it or not, this wasn't the result of some major tropical storm like Hurricane Sandy. In some ways, it was just a routine early fall low-pressure system. But as we saw in Vermont and New York flooding this summer, in a warmer climate, these rainstorms can produce a whole lot more water than you'd expect. That's because hotter air holds more moisture. And both the air and water are as hot as they've been in human history. July was the planet's hottest month on record. August was the hottest August ever. And this September is on track to be the hottest September ever. The weather system hammering New York on Friday was slowly trawling the Atlantic, sucking up ocean water, also the hottest on record, and dumping it in buckets on the land. As we have seen in storm after storm over the years, New York's infrastructure simply isn't built to handle flooding. Commuters have far too many memories of subway stations turning into filthy water parks in a flash. Some New York City Council members criticized the city's slow reaction to the storm, which suggested the downpour had come as a surprise. In city officials' defense, the weather forecast merely called for a lot of rain. But climate change gives, gives a whole new meaning to the words, a lot of rain. It's long past time for pol- political leaders and citizens alike to prepare differently for such forecasts. Meanwhile, some of the billions President Joe Biden and Congress allocated to infrastructure last year must be spent on waterproofing New York and other cities much more thoroughly. From hurricanes to routine fall storms, it's far too easy to bring one of the greatest cities in the world to a wet, grinding halt. This editorial was by Mark Gongloff, who is a Bloomberg opinion editor and columnist covering climate change. He previously worked for Fortune.com, The Huffington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. Our final opinion piece today is entitled, Stubbornness Kept Feinstein Around, Defined Her Success, by Mark Z. Barabak of the Los Angeles Times. On Thursday, Diane Feinstein cast her final Senate vote on a measure aimed at preventing a looming government shutdown. Hours later, she was gone. That last public act is a fitting one for California's legendary U.S. Senator. Her life was devoted to politics and public service, words she used with sincerity and no hint of irony. In truth, Feinstein really had no other life outside government, which explains why she remained in office, a shell of her old self at age 90, long after mental and physical incapacity should have forced her retirement. It was selfish, no doubt, though it should be noted Feinstein was re-elected handily at age 85 when her diminished state was plain for voters to see. There was another more admirable side to that stubbornness and refusal to quit, a ramrod determination and unsinking resilience that girded Feinstein through a lifetime filled with maelstrom. Those who knew her well, and few knew Feinstein better than Roberts, insisted she would never bow to pressure, however strong and unrelenting, to leave the Senate before she chose. Instead, in characteristic fashion, Feinstein departed on her own terms, suddenly, and despite her widely chronicled ailments, unexpectedly. She remained determined, unwavering, and for good or ill, fixed on her course to the very end. And due to time, we have had to edit this opinion piece, which again was an editorial by Mark C. Barabak of the Los Angeles Times. This concludes a reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader for today, Tuesday, October 3, 2023. Your reader has been Cindy Fraser with Bill Sally on the Master Controls. Thank you for listening. 
And now, please stay tuned for sports news right here on Radio I. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 